0: Welcome to episode 10 and the final episode of us in our current incarnation as lockdown culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine.
1: And I am Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor there.
0: Before we introduce you to this week's guests, we want to reassure you, although lockdown culture is ending, we're coming back as a new podcast called Breakout Culture, basically to celebrate the easing of lockdown. So hopefully in the months ahead, we'll look uh, less at what is happening online and actually what's happening in the real world.
1: And we really do want to thank all our listeners for your support and for giving us so much excellent feedback over the last 10 weeks. Ed and I have loved doing it, so as long as you're listening, we'll go on being here every Monday as Breakout Culture. Go to our website, countryintownhouse.co.uk, and you'll find us. And you might also be really interested in listening to Country and Townhouse's other podcasts house guest with the wonderful Carol Annette chatting to the top designers in their field from Nina Campbell and Kit Kemp to Martin Kemp and Kelly Hoppen. She has a big devoted following already, 77 fabulous episodes you can dip in and out of, but for any of you interested in design and interiors, it's a must.
0: So our first guest is Matthew Burrows, who could be single-handedly responsible for saving the income of hundreds of artists during lockdown. Yes, and wonderfully, we
1: know Matthew through this podcast because it was his wife, Liz Gilmore, who runs Hastings Contemporary, who alerted us to what he's doing. So Matthew is the founder of the Artist Support Pledge and he's here to tell us all about it. Hello, Matthew.
2: Hello, Charlotte. So
0: Matthew, tell us everything. Start from the beginning.
2: Um, Well, it started on the 16th of March when I was receiving messages from friends and colleagues saying that exhibitions had closed or were closing and work was coming to an end and I'd just been uh, dealing with emails myself along the same lines and I sort of thought this is quite a desperate moment for artists because I didn't see any potential for them to be supported by any other structures. So I sort of literally just wrote down on a piece of paper beside my computer what I thought my assets were that I could use to help in some way, and they came down to artwork and a culture of trust and generosity, which is a sort of concept and a project I've been working with for about 12 years now, where I've been developing networks and sort of peer mentoring groups of sort of mid career, sort of established artists to support one another through their careers. So I use this network and then came up with the formula, which is that no work could be on there for more than 200 pounds, can be less, but no more than 200 pounds. And when you reach 1000 pounds worth of sales, you pledge to buy another artist's work for up to 200 pounds. So that was the sort of the simple sort of formula. And then I came up with this sort of culture of generosity, which has been the the means by which I sort of maintained its re- in- integrity.
1: I think what's really interesting, Matt, you were saying that lots of people have been earning thousands that they've never earned before. So are there lots of people who've suddenly got loads and loads and loads more art because they've every time they reach a 1,000, they've got to spend 200 on someone else's painting?
2: Anecdotally, talking to people who are doing very well on it, they are obviously purchasing an awful lot of work, um, which is great in that, obviously, that supporting... Their colleagues and friends, but also it means they're building quite a collection. I think in the long term, I'm looking at models of using that to then create sort of funding mechanisms, so that you know if you're an artist who's doing very well, there is there's a point where you not want to buy more work because you don't have anywhere to put it. So I'm looking at using that the pledge as a means for the funding artists in need or sort of sponsoring artists or even potentially for funding and sponsoring students through their studies
1: so tell us some of the biggest success stories i know that you mentioned joe packer was one of them tell us about him
2: yeah well joe works in the theater and he um his works obviously came to an end but he's done very well i mean he uh, he he does it every day he he puts on one in the morning puts on one in the evening they sell within a second of going on, and there are many people like him, you know some people I know a number of people have waiting lists of sixty to seventy people
0: but this is amazing what What, what is it that 's kind of allowed these artists to take off suddenly that previous previous attempts to sell to put it crudely haven 't worked i, I think it 's just it 's about the price bracket everyone 's selling at the
2: same price from. Or, or roughly the same price, from complete unknowns to established artists. So there's no hierarchy financially. It's simply, do you like it, do you not?
0: To, to find an artist, it's through Instagram or it's a, a dedicated website?
2: Yeah, it's through Instagram. So all you do is you just search hashtag artist support pledge, and that will take you to the hashtag. And on there, there are 270,000 plus um posts and then all you do is you just message the artist so the wow all the contractual arrangements are literally between buyer artist so
0: Can it's very I just simple ask very quickly i mean you didn't want to use any of the established online art markets like art finder for example did you consider that or did you no i mean you know, I, I, there's I think a big the, philosophy behind your approach that kind of excludes them
2: yeah i mean i i, I went down this idea that if it had to be a really quick economy had to be had to develop rapidly and it had to give returns immediately so it couldn't be you know a month or two months later as as, as it happens within the art world it had to be you know that week even maybe that day um, so I had to come up with a model that I thought would spread and I came up with this idea this concept of generosity is infectious and use in a way the sense that you know a pandemic spreads from community to community. So could I create an economy that matches that infection? So it's in a way, it spreads through the communities, not not through it being a disease, but through it being an act of um, kindness and goodwill. It works when we cooperate. It works when we stay together as a community and abide by those codes of conduct. So when we all do that, we all benefit. And what's, I think, been the surprise in this is that when I set it, set it up, really, it was just, okay, could this help a few artists survive COVID-19? You know, pay the rent, maybe put some food on the table. It became, I became aware very quickly, I mean, literally within the first two days, that it was doing a lot more than that and that people were actually not only making a living out of it, but they were making a living substantially better than they were before.
1: Matthew, just going back to um, some of the artists for a minute, because I know our listeners would love to know what you can actually buy on there. One of the interesting things you said to me was that a lot of very established artists whose work can usually be found in galleries, they're actually loving this because a gallery is never going to take on a £200 piece of work because it's not just worth their while
2: so it took a bit of time i think to convince more established artists to do it because obviously they i think initially thought oh this is for sort of you know emerging artists or or perhaps students or amateurs and it was only after partly me going on about it for so long i think that they sort of realized actually this is not about people who who necessarily just need the money it's about us all supporting one another slowly the established art world are starting to realize that it it's it's quite not only lucrative in the sense that it can bring in a fairly substantial I mean you know it's not unusual for people doing quite well to be making a thousand pounds a day uh, which is a good return for most artists even well-established artists
0: it's good for anybody
2: (laughs) yeah absolutely I mean you know don't don't get me wrong not everybody's doing that
0: (laughs) so I mean, one thing I was thinking, Matthew, is and I don't know if this is too vulgar and whether it would slightly ruin the spirit of the thing, but if somebody, if, if a kind of global artist like David Hockney suddenly pitched up and said, I will supply 10 paintings to the Artist Support Pledge, would that kind of slightly... I know mean, it sounds peculiar. It sounds like I'm being rude to David Hockney. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, but would it slightly undermine the sort of community aspect of the programme or not? Oh, no, not at
2: all. I mean, I've, I've been trying to get people to do that because actually everyone is selling work at the same level. So yes, he might sell out quicker, but that money then goes back into the system. So it's a system of mutual support rather than a kind of, pyramid system where there's a few people at the top earning a lot of money anyone who's selling well is supporting their peers is naturally so supporting even David those around Hotton them
1: can't charge um, 200 more than 200 can he no a, a he'd
2: cute, be charging no. 200 pounds and and 20 percent of all those sales goes back in to supporting okay. his his fellow colleagues and, and artists across the world a lot of the artists who i've been tracking through the process to see how it works and how they're doing tell me that they are selling almost as much off the Pledge now as they are on it from their sales that have come from people seeing their work on on the actual Pledge itself. I mean, I've been playing around with ideas like this for years. I think the context of the pandemic just gave that moment, that brief moment where people let their guards down, thought, okay, how, what am I going to do? And there was enough people who had that question in their head. And then I just happened to give a, an answer that worked at the right moment. Well,
1: I think it's a fantastically positive story to come out of lockdown with. I think it's brilliant.
0: Thanks so much for sharing all that with us. And I hope that we um, give it a little boost. Not that I think it needs it, but it's fantastic. So that was an exceptionally heartwarming and uplifting account of how lockdown has changed many artists' lives for the better. But now we want to turn to a sadder story about one of lockdown's many tragic casualties. We haven't talked about restaurants in this podcast yet, but there is one London restaurant that has stood head and shoulders above its competitors for 38 years. Yes, of course, I'm talking about Le Caprice tucked away behind the Ritz on Piccadilly, and it's epitomized the very model of urban elegance and become a social institution with a devoted international clientele. It needs no introduction at all to anyone who's been there And both Charlotte and I are avid fans. So when we heard that the Caprice was to close its doors on its current site, we both went into mourning.
1: Absolutely. And like you, Ed, ever since my brother Justin went there just about the day it opened, my family celebrated so many milestones there from birthdays, even to my mother's memorial dinner. I actually cannot believe I'll never go there again. Now, as all its regulars know, only too well much of Le Caprice's success was dependent on its unsurpassed service, lively atmosphere. And that was because the restaurant was under the expert guidance of its famed director and the best maitre d' on the entire planet, Jesus Adorno. And he's with us here today. Hello, Jesus.
0: Hello, Charlotte. Hello, Ed. Hello. I never thought I would do a podcast with Jesus. This is a, <laughs> this is a, a brilliant moment in it, my it's life. A great I, mean, name. I think that being a maitre d' at a, restaurant is the most important job because I always used to joke when I was a minister in the government that if uh, we had had someone like you on the door of Downing Street, a lot more things would have got done. I remember when the um, team who were going to film Star Wars in the UK came to Downing Street and they were made to wait in their van outside for (laughs) half an hour. I've always said that if I was, if I ever became prime minister, the first person I would uh look to a point is the person who greeted people as they arrived at downing street now jesus there's a lot more to being a maitre d than that but tell us i mean i don't even know where to start
3: well i can tell you that uh one of the uh my first love of course uh apart from my my wife and my my beautiful daughters is le caprice you know i've been devoted uh to le caprice since uh september 1st 81 with uh, Chris Corving and Jeremy King and Joseph, when they opened the restaurant, uh, you know, which was uh, a breakthrough in London, especially and throughout England, of course, being the first restaurant that uh, was different in every way, shape, and form.
1: What was it that made it so different? Do you think?
3: First of all, I think it was its look. You know, it was the first time ever, uh, you know, in the history of uh, of uh, hospitality, that uh, that a restaurant had come up. With that uh, black and white uh, look, uh, very much 1920s New York, long American bar, and of course David Bailey's photographs uh, from from the uh, 60s and 70s of very well known actors and, and names in the art industry. So it captivated everyone, and you know the very wise and clever thing from Chris and Jeremy at the time. Was that uh, we were the first restaurant that opened until midnight?
1: That's really interesting. I didn't know you were the first person to the first
3: restaurant to be open till midnight. Mm. Indeed, indeed, indeed. And uh, I can actually tell you what happened once because I used to work at a restaurant before, like a called Inigo Jones, opposite the Garrick Club, which I'm sure Ed was already a a, a member. Uh, that restaurant was very well known in the seventies. And early eighties, the kitchen would close at eleven o'clock. At that time, uh, Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister, and she went to a show which had finished after eleven o'clock. The security came over to 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 the to the desk and asked the manager, "Do you know the prime minister wants to come and have dinner here?" The chef said, "No, we are closed." Do you know? And they gave me the first insight, insights of how. Well, powerful, naturally, the, the the chef are and were. And also, do you know, that there was no lack of, there was lack of service. So when Chris and Jeremy opened like a wow, I was in heaven. We were the, the mecca of everyone coming from the theater, actors, politicians, it was just wonderful, and I loved it. But Jesus,
1: how on earth do you remember everybody? And you do. You remember everybody who walks through that door. What's your secret?
3: I think I just i love what I
0: do. Now, Jesus, if I asked you who your favourite child was, you would, of course, tell me that you love them all equally. So I wouldn't ask you who your favourite customer was because you would say you love them all equally. But who were the, who were the most uh, caprice? Who used the caprice the most? Who were the big... We we we
3: we have we were were quite quite well known for 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 the the art dealers, you know the art dealers around around Mayfair. They were they they used like Caprice as as a a canteen private club, you know. And uh, I was very very proud of that. Princess Diana was a wonderful person. She was ever so. Kind. I know that everyone says so, but it's true. She was ever so 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 kind. It was just a, so easy going. And uh, I was also mesmerized by how many customers, as soon as she moved to one side, she went into the table, she came out. The restaurant kept quiet for a few seconds. That I was mesmerized by that, you know? Uh, it was like, uh, you know, when someone very important comes into 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 a room then everyone look, I love it. Everyone keep quiet. I love it. You know, so so I was very lucky that um, you know, like a is loved by so many, so many regulars. I have had hundreds and hundreds of emails, voice messages, uh, texts, You know, the last the last two weeks, uh, because of Le a closing down for the time being. Moving somewhere else as soon as ah. possible.
1: So where? Come on, tell us the plans. Because well, you know, well, uh, when uh, well, are we coming uh, back?
3: <laughs> well, believe you me, I think as soon as uh, naturally, uh, you know, July the fourth and into into July comes, and uh, restaurants overall are working at some sort of a speed. They naturally, uh, Richard carries and the and HQ will start making sure that we, we look for a nice site, bigger site. We need uh, outside space. Do you know, I've always, always believed now that uh, uh, for a restaurant to be successful, you have to have at least uh, an average of about 25 to 30 tables, which means 100 to 120 people. Le Caprice only had 78. And uh, I also I also believe that it's crucial now to have outside the space because more and more, you know, Londoners, they love to eat outside. And they're excited to, 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 to continue uh, looking after you and Ed, you know. So please, when the time comes...
1: Well, can we I have just to- get this organised now? Can, can Can we just make sure Ed and I, opening night we have a table. Can we just get that on the record, on air, right now? <laughs> can I just...
0: Jesus, I, I want to I know the tricks of the trade, because as a maitre d' you have a, a, a major challenge, a sort of law of physics challenge, which is obviously you've got 78 covers, it's one fifteen at lunchtime and every table is full, and in walks... Charlotte Fruity Metcalf, (laughs) uh, one of your (laughs) regulars, part of the furniture of the (laughs) Caprice. And she wants a table for two. And uh, you can't do it. Every
2: table is full.
3: What what does the brilliant Major Me do in these circumstances? You're quite right. I cannot do it right away. (laughs) You know, but I can do it. You've in always course. done it. Yeah, in your course, <laughs> course, in your course, in your course. You know, I've learned, I've learned a very hard, very hard, constructive lesson. A very well-known uh, journalist uh, came into the restaurant as you quite rightly said at one fifteen. I just froze because uh, I said hello, sir. <laughs> is, my, is, my, is my table ready, uh, sir? Uh, uh, are you the guest? no <laughs> i have a table
4: i'm so
3: sorry and i started shaking a little bit i'm so sorry son. but uh, you know i don't see your name here and i don't have a table and uh, he said sec- my secretary never make mistakes how dare you and i said i'm so sorry sir. you know if i could i would but i don't have a table he stormed off you know and i was still shaking and I went back into the restaurant and as I got to the last table at the back of the restaurant, the gentleman there said to me, can I have the bill, please, Jesus? You know, I tried to run after the gentleman that had just left and of course I didn't see him. I was mortified. Still on my still on my, on, on my memoirs for, 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 forever. But what a, an amazing, great, hard lesson to have. Never say no to a customer. You know, always do your best. Think for about 10, 15, 20 se- seconds. Just say, give me a few seconds. I'll go into the room and see what, can, what I can do. But never say no.
0: Have you ever had to ask anyone to leave the restaurant? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me, I think me. At apart the from <laughs> <in the morning. laughs> apart from apart, apart from fruity, apart from fruity mezcal,
3: oh, he was, was regularly asked to leave. <laughs> there was a wonderful, you know, this was uh, you know a few years back also. Uh, there was a fantastic table of of, of six uh, people uh, right in the middle of the restaurant, and uh, they came in at half past six until the table was taking until half past eight. And uh, we were solid. We were rammed in. Um, you know, I went to the gentleman. They were already on coffee. I said, would you mind, sir, as you know, the table was available until until 30. Like he said to me, give me a few minutes. About five minutes later, the other six people, they were already waiting. They, arri- they arrived on time. Five minutes later i went i'm so sorry, sir, as you know, the table was only until eight thirty now it 's about eight forty. Would you mind if I give you the bill? no, go away <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. i start, i start sweating, and then five <laughs> minutes later, I went back inside again to the te- to, to him sir i'm uh, do 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 apologize by i'm under a lot of pressure. I go, this is six people waiting 20 minutes now. Uh, would you mind? He got up. He must have been one meter 85, taller, big. He got up. He brought me to the corner of the bar, just just by, by the kitchen door. And they said to me, "Do you know something? I'm going to buy this restaurant. And the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to give you this sack. I'm going to get rid of you and i <laughs> oh, said by God. all means and by all means i said please do whatever once you buy the restaurant do whatever you want right now i need your table <laughs> he looked at me he looked at the by the door by the door naturally people waiting he went back to the table he said let's go mm. he never he never mm. came back and i was so i'm so relieved that he never came back.
1: Well, that's his loss, but Ed and I are definitely coming back, which brings us on to the $100 million question. When is Le Caprice going to open again?
3: Do you know? No. No, no, no. No, no. no, no not yet. Not, not yet. I mean, it all depends, isn't it? I mean, this pandemic has caused so many chaos and sad news and, uh, you know, all over the world. So it's still early early days, I think, for, for, for Le Caprice the new Caprice but when it happens it will be a wonderful wonderful uh, I guess it will be a a mix of the old Caprice and the new modern Caprice and it has to be like that we had to evolution also you know so so you'll see me there Charlotte Ed fantastic (laughs) yes yes Jesus thank you so much for
0: spending time with us Uh, we're really looking forward to the reopening of the Caprice I know it's means an enormous amount to Charlotte's fragile ego that she gets a table there. So, and I know that you will will do your very best to make that happen. Thanks so much for your time. This is our last week as lockdown culture. So we wanted to end by telling you about Remember Me, a very moving initiative by St Paul's Cathedral to commemorate and honour everyone who's lost their lives as a result of COVID. St Paul's has created a special space on their website where family and friends of people who've died can post a photograph and a short tribute. There's an address by Prince Charles who supports the scheme and a beautiful rendering of Felix Mendelssohn's Lift Thine Eyes by the St Paul's choristers. There's also a plan to build an inner portico at the North transept and dedicate it as a physical memorial to those who died. Now, one of the main supporters of Remember Me is the philanthropist Sir Lloyd Dorfman, founder of Travelex and chairman of Prince's Trust International, plus a very well-known and huge supporter of the theatre, And I'm delighted that Sir Lloyd is joining us on this podcast.
1: Sir Lloyd, hello.
4: Hi, hello, hi, how are you? Um,
1: We're we're great and we're absolutely thrilled to have you with us. Thank you. And um, there's lots we're very keen to talk to you about. But first, can you tell us whose idea Remember Me was and how and why you first became involved with it?
4: Uh, Well, the idea originated uh, in a conversation, uh, I wasn't there, but so I'm told, in a conversation between uh, the Bishop of London, Bishop Sarah Mullally. Uh, and the Dean of St Paul's, uh, David Eisen. Um, My involvement is actually quite a nice story, which which begins a few years ago when um, I and the family uh, ended up supporting the first building project at Westminster Abbey for 275 years, which was the building of a tower, uh, taking people up to the first floor of the Abbey and the opening of the Uh, what's become known as the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Galleries, from which they display all the artefacts of Westminster Abbey that nobody ever gets to see. Uh, And it was a wonderful thing to be involved, uh, and a little tangential for me because uh, I'm Jewish, so not an obvious link, but as one of my fellow Jewish donors said to me at the time, you know, he thinks it's really important that we do this because this is a, a way of saying thank you to this country that opened its arms to our forefathers some generations ago and gave them an opportunity to make of their lives whatever they will in a free and open democratic society. And through that relationship um, I then came to know the St Paul's Cathedral people about 18 months ago uh, and I was faithfully in, um, in a Zoom meeting uh, as we've all come to know uh, around the beginning of April. Uh, and I'd been asked to join the development committee and there was three of us. I was talking to the um, head of development, Nikki Wynn, at the cathedral. And uh, she said she'd just been landed this project, which had resulted from this conversation between uh, the Bishop of London and, and the Dean. And this was, you know, with all this, all these deaths going on and, and very restricted funerals and people not having an opportunity to say goodbye to their loved ones, you know, it was a very fraught and, and upsetting time for many, many and a growing number of families around the country, um, and there was this idea to create an online book of remembrance. St Paul's historically uh, has had this role for the nation to be the sort of nation's remembrancer for, for great events and also great tragedies. Um, and she'd been given this this task, and she said the only problem is that she didn't have any money. You know, I was sort of, I suppose I was you know in the right place at the right time, and I said, look, this is an amazing, amazing initiative, and you've absolutely got to do this. And you've got to get it done quickly because, uh, you know, all this is going on around us and it's going to get worse. Um, I said, look, don't worry about the cost. I'll sponsor it, underwrite it. I'll make sure one way or another it won't cost St Paul's Cathedral any money at all. I should say, by the way, that the idea of this, this online book of remembrance was it should be for people of all faiths and none. So it was for everybody. It, just, it wasn't just a Christian initiative. And so far we've got uh, just approaching 5,000 submissions. Um, as we all know, there's over 40,000 deaths so far. Uh, So we've got a way to go. And the important thing is to get the message out there and encourage families to do it. Um, And from my point of view, it was a sort of really special, lovely and very worthwhile thing to have helped made happen.
1: I absolutely agree. And um, I really hope we can help you bring in more of those tributes because I was looking at some of them this morning and, they're incredibly moving, and I think for us all to be able to put faces and names to the anonymous death figures, you know, that are reported on that sort of slightly grim daily basis, um, I think it's a wonderful thing. And I'm—we were also Ed and I were talking about this earlier. I think we were also really struck by the fact this seems to be the only place where there is any kind of collective tribute to the people who've died. So I was very interested to ask you. Um, you know, especially as Covid nineteen deaths start to decline a bit, you know, and we're all getting focused on moving on. Why you think it's so important for us as a society not to forget?
4: For all those grieving families that are mourning, you know, this is not gonna this is not gonna bring back their loved ones, you know, but it'll provide some solace and and through this very special historical significance that St Paul's Cathedral has for the nation, hopefully to provide some you know, to to give their lost loved ones, you know, apart in the history of this country through this terrible period, as you mentioned uh, uh, earlier, you know, the the idea is there will be a physical memorial uh, in the cathedral uh, in due course. And we're starting to think about that as well. So that these people who may not have had the normal sort of funeral and may not have had a chance to say goodbye, you know, that they won't just remain statistics and that they will actually end up with a very special place Uh, in the history of this country.
0: What a moving and apt place to end our final episode of Lockdown Culture. That was the wonderful philanthropist Sir Lloyd Dorfman, encouraging anyone who's lost a loved one from COVID To pay tribute to them and create a memorial in the St Paul's Book of Remembrance.
1: Yes, and we'll have all those details, remember me, on our website, countryintownhouse.co.uk. And thank you to Sir Lloyd, because I agree with Ed, that was a really proper and fitting way to round off our first 10 podcasts and commemorate all those who have died from COVID during lockdown and before. Now, as Ed has said already, we're not going anywhere. We'll be back next week as Breakout Culture, bringing you the latest news on what to see and do, what's starting to open up and when we can start breaking out. And of course, it goes without saying that we'll keep you all updated with news of Le Caprice. And if you've
0: any doubt about how to find us, all details will be on the Country and Townhouse website. But meanwhile, many thanks for listening to us for the last 10 weeks. Charlotte and I, as she said, have loved it. It's made our lockdown fun and interesting. It's allowed us to chat to loads of people we admire and love. We hope it's cheered you up too, and we really look forward to continuing to do that from next week. But for now, it's goodbye from Charlotte, and it's goodbye from me.